Hey, everybody. This is the second of our short two-week series called World Gone Mad. So what you're going to hear is the sermon that I preached this past weekend and that people have asked that we record. So we did. Well, it has been another interesting week in America, as large chunks of the country continue to insist that Trump won an election that really isn't that close. And it's one thing when some fringe people say bizarre things or when there are political disagreements about policy and whatnot. It's another with some of the stuff that we've actually been seeing. I don't know about you, but I've had multiple moments watching what's going on in our country where I'm just left wondering, do these people actually believe what they're saying? Or is this some sort of bizarre performance art? Either way, I don't get it. And it drives home from, for me more and more, wow, these people really do live in a world that's completely different than mine. They look at the world completely differently than I do. Like, I can't even understand their worldview. It just baffles me. And from what I can tell, they'd probably say the same about me. So we're left with this feeling that the world has gone mad and we can't even understand the worldview of the other side sometimes. When we look around and we see people talking, acting, protesting in ways that make it abundantly clear, they see the world completely differently than we do. And so then we can start wondering, am I the crazy one? It's disorienting. It's isolating. It's anxiety producing. What do we do with that? When it seems like the world has gone mad because we're surrounded by people who look at the world totally differently than we do. And watching how this has played out over the past few years, it seems like there's three main responses to that question, three things that keep showing up again and again. The first response is fear. So many people seem genuinely afraid that if the other side wins, the world will almost literally end. And election after election, this existential threat keeps being brought up as both sides capitalize on and stoke the fear that people are bringing into their lives and into the voting booth. Fear of immigrants, fear of gun-toting mobs, fear of gun-confiscating mobs, fear of economic stagnation, fear of tyranny, fear of abortion restrictions, fear of change, just fear. And along with that fear, there's the second response, hate and hostility. If I'm afraid that the other side is going to destroy democracy or bring in tyranny or whatever, then it's only one small step to contempt and hatred and Boy, oh boy, do we see a lot of that out there, don't we? I don't really get the fear response, just speaking personally. It's not one I'm particularly prone to. I hope that's evidence of trusting in God, shaping my character at least a little bit. But I can certainly identify with the hostility that only seems to be growing between the two sides, where one side doesn't just disagree with the other, but has contempt for the other, hates the other. I don't feel the pull to fear, but I feel that pull. And it's no better than being driven by fear, really. The third response I think is out there is apathy. Ah, who cares? It's not going to affect me much either way, so what does it matter? Fear, hate, apathy. Those, to me at least, seem to be the dominant ways most people are responding right now. Or at least they're the most obvious ways people are responding right now. One of the interesting things about the Bible and I hope this came through in our series of Jeremiah, if you were with us for that, is just how much the things going on back then mirror the things going on today. There's surface level differences of culture and custom, of course, but when you dig down below that, it's really striking how much things stay the same. We're going to be starting a series on the Gospel of Matthew next week, going through Christmas and into the new year. 
And actually, I'm sort of sneakily starting it two weeks early because we looked at Jesus's words on the cross in Matthew last week, and we're looking at another passage of Matthew this week. <clears throat> but one of the overarching themes that scholars of Matthew have identified and that we will see over the course of that series is the contrast between how different groups of people received Jesus and Jesus's message. You have the Pharisees who react one way, hostily and with unbelief. You have the crowds who react a different way, with curiosity that turns to hostility when Jesus doesn't conform to their ideas of who or what the Messiah should be. Then you have the disciples who react a different way, with belief, though imperfect belief at best. And what many scholars think is happening, that is why Matthew includes so much material that highlights the differences in reception that Jesus gets from different groups, is that the churches Matthew is a part of, those in the last half of the first century, had a common question. Wait, if all that we believe to be true about Jesus really is true, why do so few people seem to believe and respond to it? Why do the vast majority of people, when they hear what we believe, reject it? When it seems so obviously true and life-giving and good newsy to us? And Matthew's response to that question is to say, in the same way that the prophets like Jeremiah said centuries before, it's always been this way. Look at how many people rejected Jesus when he was still alive and walking around. It's not surprising that so many people reject what we know to be true now. It would be surprising if they did accept it. Because the history of God's people shows us that usually rejection is the norm. It's in Matthew 13 that Jesus says, No prophet is without honor, except in his own town and in his own house. And the rest of that chapter is taken up with parables. Little stories and images that illustrate a truth about God or the world or the coming kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it. But those stories and images, they're opaque. They're hard to understand. They require thought and reflection and, crucially, revelation from God to us to see their meaning. Look at how Jesus responds when the disciples come to ask him why on earth he teaches this way, in a way that's almost tailor-made to be misunderstood. Jesus tells the parable of the man who goes out to sow seed and sows on four different types of soil with four different results. And in verse 10, his disciples came to him. Why are you speaking to them in parables, they ask. Jesus replied, you've been given the gift of knowing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but they haven't been given it. Anyone who already has something will be given more and they will have plenty. But anyone who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. That's why I speak to them in parables, so that they may look but not see, and hear but not understand or take it in. Isaiah's prophecy is coming true in them. You will listen and listen but won't understand. You will look and look but not see. This people's heart has grown flabby and fat. Their ears are muffled and dulled, so they won't be able to see with their eyes or know in their heart, and they won't turn again and be healed." At first glance, this seems kind of mean-spirited on Jesus's part, and some have interpreted it in this way, that God just closes the eyes and ears of certain people as a punishment for sin or something, whereas we, we are the blessed ones whose eyes and ears God has opened. But I think the reference to the prophet Isaiah points us in a slightly different direction. As we saw in the book of Jeremiah, one of the key questions the prophets were asking was, where do you put your trust? Because trusting in Yahweh leads to life. But trusting in other things, idols, political alliances, money, ethnic and religious identity, trusting in those things leads to emptiness and death. 
And in fact, as we saw in Jeremiah, when you trust in Yahweh as opposed to other things, it actually changes the way you see the world, the way you see other people, the way you see life. When you put your trust in Yahweh, when you know that it will be okay because Yahweh is God, you look at the same circumstances, but come to very different conclusions. And so, as we said so many times in Jeremiah, the blindness that Jesus is speaking of here is not really a punishment from God, so much as the natural outworking of not trusting in Yahweh. Trusting in God allows us to see reality in a way that those who put their trust elsewhere cannot. People who trust in money start to see other people as more or less a means to an end, or else irrelevant. People who trust in Yahweh recognize the dignity of the image of God in others. People who trust in politics or in the right judges making the right decisions see a loss in an election as a crisis of apocalyptic proportions. People who trust in Yahweh know that history is a long record of steps forward and steps back, and that in God's world, life keeps breaking out, even, sometimes especially, in the midst of death. Putting our trust in God means we see things differently. We see what's true, even when the truth is obscured and hard to find. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus into the world, that we not take the world at face value, because by God's grace, we see. So where do we go from there? Because the temptation, one that God's people are always wrestling with, is to say, we're right, they're wrong, congratulations, pat yourself on the back for our own rightness, aren't we so great and enlightened? But when we look at the early church in the pages of the New Testament, They don't fall into any of these temptations, fear, hate, apathy, self-righteousness. They have a distinct viewpoint of what is true. They believe wholeheartedly that they see reality in a way that the rest of the world around them does not. They believe that they are right and everyone else is wrong and that it is profoundly important that people see in the way they see. And yet they aren't driven by fear. They don't give in to hostility. They don't shrug their shoulders in apathy. They don't collapse into self-righteousness. In the New Testament, we see people who believed with all their being that it mattered deeply, that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, that the world was on the wrong path, one that led to death, and yet they weren't afraid when the world continued down that path. They thought the people around them were profoundly wrong about what they believed and how they looked at the world, And yet they didn't feel hostility towards them. Instead, we see them doing two things. First, they kept reminding each other of what's true. We talked last week about remembering what God has done in the past. But one other way we see the people of God talk about what is true is by reminding each other of what's true now and what we know is coming. Sometimes this happened in plain language. And sometimes, interestingly, it happens in the land of metaphor and allegory. Scholars call this apocalyptic language, which we usually associate with the apocalypse or the disastrous end of the world scenarios. But apocalypse actually comes from Greek words, meaning something more like unveiling, uncovering, or revealing. In fact, the book that ends our Bibles, what we call Revelation, or to use its full title, the Revelation of John, could just as accurately be translated the Apocalypse of John. And it's the longest, though not the only, example of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. We're going to talk more about apocalyptic literature when we are going through Matthew, probably in the backdrop. But one key thing for us today is this. 
the point of apocalyptic literature is not to tell us what is going to happen at the end of time. The point of it is to remind us of what is true now, to unveil or reveal the truth that's all around us, but which only those who trust in God can see. N.T. Wright has written a fair amount about this topic, and he says that apocalypse is about a contrast between what's on the surface and what is true underneath, one that gives the real world its proper theological significance. I want to look briefly at one example of this from the book of Daniel chapter 7. In it, Daniel has a dream where four beasts come out of the sea and there's fire and smoke and the beasts rule over the earth and trample it and break the earth to pieces. And it sounds like the end of the world. But then a final figure appears, one who looks like a human being or a son of man, as it is literally translated, coming with the clouds of heaven. And to him is given an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away, superseding the previous beasts' kingdoms. The New Testament picks up on this chapter and refers to it often, including in the book of Revelation. But this chapter is not really about the end of the world or the apocalypse in that sense. It's about very real world issues. Kingdoms would rise and fall, and they would seem to be earth conquering and all encompassing, but they aren't. Because despite the appearances of power that earthly kingdoms like to show, God is still the one in charge, and God will put things right in the end. This is a central truth that the New Testament also picks up on. One of the main messages of the book of Revelation, actually, Rome may seem all-powerful. You may look around and all you see are shows of Roman strength and Roman religion and Roman empire, but look closer and you'll see, at least if you put your trust in God, that all this is empty and will pass away, but God's kingdom has come and will be everlasting. Sometimes the figurative is the only type of language that can communicate truths like this effectively in a world gone mad. So that's the first thing the people of God have done throughout history when the world has gone mad and the people believe the lies all around themselves instead of the truth. We remind one another of what is true, whether in obvious or figurative ways. We tell ourselves stories about the kingdom of God and what it means to live as if that kingdom were already here and that we might be a part of it now. But then second, instead of hatred, fear, or condescension towards those who see things differently, they kept inviting others to see as they saw, telling others the good news that there is a path that leads to life, and it's this way. Why don't you join us? There's a path that isn't one of fear and hostility and anxiety and insecurity and apathy, one that's not dependent on the right election results in order for us to find and experience life. There is a path that is open to all, that only requires from us one thing, although it is one truly difficult thing, and that is to stop putting our trust in other things and to put our trust in God. To, as Jesus said it, and as we'll look at next week, to repent and believe. Because once our trust is in God, we start to see things differently. We become a part of a family of people who see things differently and who can remind us that, no, we are not crazy. It's the world that's gone mad. And we follow a Jesus who loves that world anyway, who died for that world so that it might have life. Amen.